सतो मद्गमय तमसो मोतिर्गमय मृत्युर्मा अमृत गमय Om lead us from the unreal to the real lead us from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality om peace peace Can we have the lights on? Yes. Good morning. And today we are specially blessed to have one of the senior most monks of our order, Swami Atmatatwananda Shiva Maharaj, in our midst. He is incognito, so you can't recognize him. <laughs> um, this morning, the subject is. the divine artist and you will soon see why this uh, why we have this interesting title for the subject the divine artist let people settle down as they will This morning the talk is based on this um 14th century text on Advaita Vedanta a very famous text on Advaita Vedanta the Panchadashi of Vidyaranya Swami uh, in the Panchadashi you have 15 chapters on Advaita Vedanta today what the one I'm going to talk about is the 6th chapter what the, what I'm going to draw upon is the 6th chapter it's possibly the the largest chapter um in the whole book so we're going to draw upon that and the chapter is called it's it's a chapter on the picture <clears throat> um it's called chitradeepa the lamp of the picture or it's advaita explained with the analogy of painting i found that very interesting so i'm going to start with that in this chapter what vidyarnya has done is he has used the analogy of painting of art to explain advaita vedanta it seems that in those days and maybe even today when people were painting what they would do is they would take um, a piece of cloth and then go through a certain process um after which they will be able to uh, paint it The process had four stages. The first stage would be take the pure white cloth, a clean white cloth. The second stage they would uh, stiffen it with starch. Uh, it, you can't draw properly on just a cloth, so they would stiffen it with starch. And then the third thing would be they would draw an outline. The artist would draw an outline of the picture they wanted to paint. and then finally the artist would fill in the colors so four stages the cloth itself the pure white cloth itself then stiffened with starch then with an outline of the painting and then with the colors filled in with these four stages vidyaranya shows us the entire um, the cosmology of advaita vedanta the pure white cloth vidyarnya says is equivalent to nirguna brahman the absolute sat chit ananda you see in advaita vedanta the the central teaching of advaita vedanta is very simple it can be expressed in what they say the half a verse or one little sentence brahma satyam jagat mithya jiva brahmeva naparah what does that mean brahman alone is real the world is an appearance and jiva us we are none other than brahman in reality 
We are the absolute, actually. You are, you are one with Brahman or you are Brahman. So this is the central teaching of Advaita Vedanta. And see how beautifully he brings it out with this analogy of the painting. So this uh, pure white cloth is uh, Nirguna Brahman, the, the absolute existence, consciousness, bliss. Sat, Chit, Ananda. And then, next what happens is, the cloth which is stiffened with starch, so the starch is Maya, the power of Brahman. You see, Nirguna Brahman, the absolute in itself, does not, is not capable of projecting the universe. It is Brahman with the power of Maya, which is capable of projecting itself as the universe. Just as the rope is projected as the snake, or mistaken for the snake, in the classic Vedantic example, why is it mistaken? Because of ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of the rope. Here, Maya plays that role. So the cloth is stiffened with starch, making it capable of being painted upon. Similarly, Satchidananda, with the power of Maya, is now capable of projecting this universe. So that's the second stage, comparable to the cloth with, with, with the starch, stiffened with starch. Then comes the third stage. The same Satchidananda, now with the power of Maya. The third stage, remember, is the drawing of the outline in the, in the painting. So the same Satchidananda with the power of Maya, now it, the, the subtle bodies are projected. The five subtle elements, they're called Tanmatras, and out of that, the subtle bodies, our minds and intellect, you know, Sukshma Sharira, um, to be more precise, the Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, and Vijnanamaya Kosha. The subtle bodies, all of us, our minds, they are created out of those five subtle elements. That's the drawing of the outline, the outline of the painting. Third stage. And once that is done, the painter fills in the various colors, red and blue and yellow and all of that, fills in the colors, and so you have the full painting. That filling in the colors is the projection of the the gross physical universe, what you see around yourself. And that completes the picture of this universe. Very interesting how Vidyaranya has drawn this analogy. The white cloth is compared to Satchidananda Brahma. And then the cloth, the Satchidananda Brahma with the power of Maya, the, the term for that is Ishwara. In fact, that is the term for God in Vedanta. The god of religion, the god which creates and preserves and destroys this entire universe, Ishwara, that is the second stage of drawing. The cloth with starch, Satchidananda with Maya. In fact, the technical definition of Ishwara, God, you may not know that there are actually definitions of God. There's a technical definition of God in Vedanta is uh, Maya Upahita Chaitanya, uh, pure consciousness associated with Maya. And then the third stage is all the subtle bodies, consciousness associated with Maya and with all the subtle bodies. The painting, the pure white cloth, with, stiffened with the starch, with the outline of the painting. And technical definition of this is, the term used is Hiranyagarbha, cosmic mind. What is cosmic mind in Vedanta? Consciousness, Brahman, plus Maya, plus all our minds <coughs> taken together. All the minds of the jivas taken together, this is called Hiranyagarbha or cosmic mind. And the technical definition of that in Vedanta is Samashti Sukshma Sharira Upahita Chaitanyam. The combined, the totality of all minds, consciousness associate, associated with the totality of all minds, of all the billions of beings uh, in this universe, all of our minds together. That's called the cosmic mind or Hiranyagarbha, one, one term for that. Vidyaranya uses another term, Sutratma. And then the physical world is projected with all living beings, with our bodies and all, with, with, as, as you see this. The same consciousness, which is Nirguna Brahman, which with Maya is Ishwara, which, which, which with Maya and all subtle bodies is Hiranyagarbha. The same sat, the, uh, Brahman, with all physical bodies in this physical universe, the same Brahman is now called Virat. Technically, the, the definition is Samashti Sthula Sharira Upahita Chaitanya. Consciousness associated with all physical bodies. 
not just physical bodies, subtle bodies, as well as with Maya. So Virat is the final form, what you see in the universe now. In fact, that's what Arjuna saw in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita when he said, I would like to see your divine form. You say, we are seeing this universe, what else is there? Yes, but we are seeing the universe in a fractured way. That means individuals. I'm an individual, you are all separate individuals, and here is the universe spread out in front of me. We do not see it as a oneness. Imagine one consciousness associated with, with, um, with billions and billions of living beings. You see, one of the problems in public speaking is that uh, when you have 50 people or 100 people staring at you, you tend to feel nervous because everybody, they're, they're not staring at you in a hostile way. They just want to listen to you, but they're staring at you. But that's, what, that's why people feel nervous in public speaking because um, it's a digression what I'm doing, but it's interesting. Um, in the animal world, staring is a sign of aggression, right? If there's a dog and you stand and stare at it continuously, the dog will look up at you and then after some time either will look away or will growl at you or something like that or run away if you continuously stare at it. So staring continuously is a sign of aggression in the, in the animal kingdom. Normally also when we interact with people, you will notice we don't stare directly. We look, we look away and then we look, we look away and look again. So that's how we interact with people. If you stare directly, our animal minds, animal brains interpret it as a sign of aggression. That's why you feel nervous when you're faced with an audience. Now they are all staring at you, not in an aggressive way. They just want to listen to you. That's why they are paying attention. And you want them to pay attention. But your animal brain interprets it as uh, aggression. And that's why you feel nervous. Now, if 50 people can make you nervous, or 100 people can make you nervous looking at you, imagine 1,000 people. Imagine the largest audience that I have faced was 14,000 people in Belurmat. Um, but imagine then, Arjuna, when he asked Krishna, I want to see your Virat. The name of the chapter is Vishwarupa Darshan, your universal form, uh, the vision of your universal form. I want to see your Virat. You know what he saw? What he saw was, imagine all billions of human beings and billions of other dogs and cats and elephants and tigers and all down to the meanest little creature, all billions and trillions of creatures all suddenly, if they were possessed of one consciousness and they turned around and looked at you, <laughs> what would you feel? You'd be terrified. And Arjuna was terrified. He said, every hair on my body is standing on its end. It's as if, he says, as if a thousand suns have risen in the sky together. And when, you're, when you're at the focus of the attention of a lot of people, you feel the focus of the attention. In fact, more than 14,000 people, the, the largest audience that I've faced, was once I spoke at, at what we have in Belurmat, the monks' conference, where the, the entire monastic order gathers together once every few years. So we get a chance to, some of us are selected to say something to the gathered monks. I was a very young monk at that time, and newly minted, as they would say. And when I stood up to face my seniors, um, they were at that gathering, there were more than 500 monks. And that was just a gathering of monks. And when they all stared at you, nicely, but it's, uh, that was more uh, overwhelming than facing 14,000 people. Arjuna, imagine, he says, as if a thousand suns have risen in the sky together. In fact, that particular verse was quoted by Oppenheimer in the first test of the atomic bomb when he saw the first nuclear explosion, he says, as he quotes from the Gita, as if a thousand suns have risen in the sky together. I come death, I come death, uh, I come death, the swallower of worlds. Uh, he quotes that. So that is Virat. Consciousness associated with the entire universe, uh, with all living beings. That is compared to the final painting. The painting with all the figures completed with the colors filled in. So four stages of this analogy, very beautiful example given by Vidyaranya.
Now, who are we? We are the individual figures in that painting. And the thing is, the individual figures are not real. What is real is the cloth. The cloth behind this is the only reality. Why do I say that? Because the painting would not exist without the cloth. Do you see, do you follow this? The only reality there is the cloth itself. Without the cloth itself, the pure white cloth, no starched cloth, no outline painting, no final painting. The, the reality all throughout is the cloth. When you starch it, and what's there actually? Basically the cloth. When you draw an outline, what's there? Basically the cloth. And when you finally have the full painting, what's there? Basically the cloth. The, ultimately that cloth alone is the reality. So this is an example, it's not an exact example. Don't say that, no, there is a cloth plus starch. That's an example. But ultimately when the painting is completed, each individual being in that painting, each, each person, a man, a woman, a child, it's basically the cloth which is appearing in that form, in the form of a man or a woman or a child. In the same way what Advaita Vedanta says, each of us is that background consciousness, Satchidananda. When you say, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, that's what it means, the background consciousness, Satchit Ananda. That's what we are supposed to realize. Advaita Vedanta says, this entire universe that you are experiencing, all the people, all the events of your life, all the living beings, all the non-living things that you see around, are in reality, not the cloth, Brahman, Satchidananda Brahman. And that's what we are supposed to realize. We are not individual creatures of flesh and blood. We are not just body-mind complexes. We are actually Sat, Chit, Ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, appearing as this body and mind complex. They didn't have movies in those days, 700 years ago. But uh, if they had, I'm sure Vidya Arunya would have a chapter on, on the, the example of the movie, the film example chapter in the Panchadashi. But he, uh, I actually heard this very beautiful example from a Swami who was teaching us non-dual Vedanta in, in Haridwar. The example he gave was, uh, imagine there's a little boy in some remote village in India who hasn't seen what a movie is. Very difficult to find such a little boy nowadays, but anyway, just imagine. And one day his dad says, I'll take you to see a movie. And on the way to the city, when they're going to see a movie, a film, uh, the father tells the child, what you're going to see is a screen, a pure white cloth, a screen, on which pictures, light and pictures will be thrown and there'll be sound, but basically it's all happening on a screen. Now when they enter the movie hall, the movie has, the film has already started, and that's important because when we are born, the film has already started. If we could have gotten at the beginning, then we'd have, there would have been no problem. But when we are thrust into life, it's in the middle of a movie. So they get into the hall and the child watches the movie and at first he's engrossed in the movie. Like we are all, we're engrossed in life. But after some time, he asks his dad, Father, where's that screen you're talking about? Where's the screen? At, at, at one time we do ask fundamental questions of life. Is there God? What is the reality about this? Give me the truth about this. So the boy asks, where is the screen? You told me about a screen, that everything is happening on a screen. And the father says, right there, in front of you. Maybe the movie, I imagine it as the movie is uh, about the Mahabharata war, you know, Arjuna and Krishna, the Gita, Bhagavad Gita and everything. So, I remember, remember that because I had seen, my first movie was such a mythological movie about the Ramayana. And today it makes me laugh. I mean, I was delighted to see it. Today kids would think it's a joke. <laughs> it was it's so crudely made in those days. Now, when the father says, there is the screen, and the child says, the screen, you mean Krishna is the screen? No, 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 right behind Krishna, just behind Krishna in the movie. Behind Krishna, Arjuna, he's standing right there. No, 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 behind them both. Oh, the, the chariot, not the chariot, the, be, behind all of that. Oh, you mean the battlefield itself is the screen? No, all of that, behind all of that. Behind all of that is the sky. Then the father says, no, remove all of that and what you get is the screen. 
will remove everything, the Krishna and the Arjuna and the, and the battlefield and the chariot and the uh, armies and the sky and everything and remove. So nothing, that means the screen is nothing. <coughs> Do you see the problem? Whatever the father points out to, he knows what he means. But there is a picture there. And the child mistakes the picture for the screen. Right here, in all our experiences, Brahman is there. But when the teacher, when Vedanta points it out, that, that's what you are, we think, oh, I'm body. No, 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 beyond that, mind. No, 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 beyond that, blank, nothing more. No, beyond the blankness, beyond the blankness. <laughs> we, we don't get it. The only way the child will get it is when the movie stops and the lights come on in the hall. When the movie stops, there's a, there's a, a small interval when the movie stops and before the lights have come on, it's just dark. There's no movie and nothing else also. That's like deep sleep. When we sleep, sushupti, deep sleep, you do not know the self, you do not know the world, you don't know anything, just the blankness. And then the lights come on in the hall and then you see the screen and you know what it is. Not only that, very interesting. Next time the kid sees a movie, he will no longer be deluded about the screen because now he can see the movie, the movie is running, there are pictures on the screen, but while seeing the pictures on the screen, the child is very clear about uh, what the screen is. Do you follow? Yeah. The child is able to see the movie and he knows these are pictures and what's behind all of the pictures is the screen. So the child will not be deluded. It's an enlightened child, but enlightened about the movie. Now, our enlightenment is all our experiences in this world is like, are like a movie, and we have to see through these experiences to the reality behind. That's what Vedanta talks about. So that would be the movie example, if there were movies at that time, if, during Vidyarnya's time. But basically, you see, the example of the picture is, is, is valid. It's, uh, it's more or less the same example, just there are no m moving pictures or sound there. And it's a very intelligent example. Vidyaranya takes it one step further and says, look, here is the picture. And in the picture there are human beings in the picture. And the human beings are also wearing clothes. So these clothes, the cloth on a human being, on, on a person in the picture, the cloth is painted on the real cloth. There's a painted cloth and there's a real cloth. Just like that in Vedanta, there is the original consciousness, pure consciousness. And on our subtle bodies, in our subtle bodies, the consciousness is reflected. In Sanskrit, chidabhasa, the reflected consciousness, which we are aware of right now. When we look into our minds, we feel aware, we feel conscious. That is like the painted cloth. That's not original. Originally, it's the pure white cloth, which is still there. On top of that, you paint it. And, the, and Vidyarnya points out, the painting is different. Some have red clothes, some have blue clothes, some have yellow clothes. Similarly, in the world, some are um, uh, energetic and dynamic, some may be a little dull and lazy, some are very quiet and unassuming, some are very good people, some are not so good people. All of these are paintings on consciousness. So he beautifully shows the difference between jivas, individualities. The differences are not real. What is real is the background consciousness. The differences are painted on. So in this example, Brahman is the divine artist. I think the subject today was the divine artist. I was in two minds. Should I call it the divine artist or the other title I thought of was the big picture. <laughs> So maybe I'll use that next time I talk about this subject. So the, here Brahman is the divine artist and Brahman and the painting is also Brahman himself, itself. The painter is painting on, it, on himself or, uh, or itself. So it is one reality. In the Vedas, God has been compared to uh, an artist, a poet for example. I met one Swami in the Himalayas whose guru had told him he that you stay in the Himalayas and look upon the Himalayas as a visible representation of God, as a visible manifestation of Brahman. And he <laughs> quoted from Kabir Das, Khule nain dekhu sahab ko. 
I shall look upon my Lord with open eyes. Not only in meditation, with open eyes. How? That Swami told me, his guru had told him, quoted from the Vedas. Pashya Devasya Kavyam Yona Jiryati Namamara Look upon the poetry of God, which neither decays nor dies. Looking upon the, the grand sights of the Himalayas and the Ganges running down there. It's the poetry of God. So God has been compared to a painter. God has been compared to a poet. Beautiful examples. And the purpose is, we are that individual. We think of ourselves as this individual being, and you're all individual beings, different from us, but I'm not aware of the background existence consciousness place. And the, the technique of Vedanta is to lead us from, to show us that I am not the body and not the mind, I am the background consciousness. You are not the painted figure. The reality behind you and behind everybody else is the same white cloth. In the same way, the reality behind every one of us is Brahman, one reality behind everybody. And the techniques, we have heard of those techniques. I will not go into that today. Drik Drishya Viveka. How do I go back from this to the... Um, to the pure consciousness, witness consciousness. Not difficult. Drigdrishya Viveka, for example. What you see, that you are not. That's an object. The one who sees, the one who experiences, is the subject. So you see this world, obviously we don't think we are the world. But we, our problem starts with the body. The confusion starts with the body. We think we are the body. But then use that criterion. Do you experience the body? Yes, I experience the body. If I experience the body, experience means sees the body or touches the body or feels the body. If I do that, then the body is an object of my awareness. That which is aware of the body is the real me. Okay? So what is that? I, I can see the body. So the eyes, the eyes are seeing the body. Is the, uh, am, am I the eyes? Am I the sensory system? But the eyes also I'm aware of. I know I'm op I've opened my eyes. I know I can close my eyes. I know that I need glasses. That means I'm aware of my eyes. The eyes are also objects. The sensory system is also objective. That which is aware of the eyes, being different from the eyes, being inward and subtler than the eyes, that I am. Is that the mind? Consider the mind then. The thoughts in the mind, the emotions in the mind, the memories, the, the sense of ego, all of that I'm aware of. If I think two plus two, four, it's a thought. Am I not aware of that? Yes, I'm aware of that. In that case, I am not even the mind. We are in deep waters now. I am not even the mind. I'm something that which is aware of the mind. In fact, even the sense of ego, I, you feel it right now? If you say, I am sitting on this chair. Okay, everybody will agree except me. I'm not sitting on the chair. You agree, yes, I am sitting on a chair, but this this idea, this feeling, this uh, conviction that yes, I am sitting on the chair, are you aware of it? If you consider it, are you aware of it? What is aware of that? What within you is aware of this feeling, I am sitting on a chair? Clearly the I in that I am sitting on a chair, that I is also an object. You are aware of that I. Something is there within you which is aware of the I. If you are aware of it, you are not it. It's an object. Even the I, the closest thing which we, the, our central existence, I, the sense of ego, that also is something that we are aware of. Something within us is shining upon the ego. I am not the ego. If you can step back, ahankara sakshi, the witness of the ego. And that one you can never make an object. That one which is the witness of the ego, you can never make an object of it. That is the background consciousness. We are telling the painted figure, you are not the painting, you are the background white cloth. So, that pure consciousness. So this is a technique. This is called Drigdrishya Viveka. And there are other such techniques. There is the way of the method of the five sheets, Panchakosha Viveka. There's the method of the three states of aware, uh, uh, three states, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Uh, different methods. By these different methods, we come to one unchanging background consciousness, which is not an object, which is not a thing. 
it is that which is aware of all things that which is uh, which enlivens all our minds and our bodies but that's not the subject i'm going to talk about now this is the basic background those who have been coming to vedanta for a long time you know it's, it's uh, we talk about one subject only and for not only for we've been here for a hundred more than a hundred years and not just hundred years for thousands of years vedanta has been talking about one subject only the background white cloth the pure white cloth the background reality but what i'm going to do today from starting now in the sixth chapter which i'm relying on on, on the panchadashi towards the end of the sixth chapter there are 40 verses which are very interesting it's a quick q and a between the master and the disciple remember the disciple is somebody who's already been in vedanta for quite some time the disciple is somebody who has already been taught five chapters of panchadashi and that's no mean thing so we have these are this is a q and a between an advanced student and the master and you are all advanced students so you will enjoy this an absolute newcomer to vedanta will be will not find uh, much traction here but when you listen to the questions and even more so the answers we'll discuss that now you'll be delighted because you'll feel i had these questions these questions are very subtle and the answers are even more so and the advantage is if you for an advanced student for, for an absolute beginner it will not make much sense but for somebody who's been in vedanta for some time our understanding of vedanta becomes much more deep and profound when we ask these questions and we receive answers and we contemplate the answers they take us to the very verge of enlightenment and if you are lucky beyond that so let's see after listening to the teachers to to, to the master the disciple asks this question you know it's all right when i am listening to you in class but the moment i step outside the class and i go back to my life i still feel i am this body and mind and here are other people different from me and here is a real universe i don't feel this is an appearance it's a painting and i am the background ca- canvas i don't feel that the student asks what is the question dvaitasya vastutvam duality seems to be real to me the moment i step outside the class when i confront life again so what do i do and the teacher's answer is exactly what you did in class exactly what you did when you were learning vedanta what did you do what did we do just now we took up one technique drigdrishya viveka when you are confronted with with the world it seems to be i am the body and mind here is the world outside me use the same technique for example the technique which i we talk, spoke about just now that am i aware of it yes am i aware of the world which seems real if it seems real to me i'm aware of it if i'm aware of it then i am something separate from it it's an object in my consciousness apply that to the body apply that to the mind and very soon you are back into pure consciousness the answer given by the master is use the same technique of philosophical inquiry vedantic inquiry in sanskrit the the word is vichara or viveka separating the real and the unreal you see all of this is a painting upon the white cloth all of this is an appearance to the consciousness which i am use that technique even when you are outside when you are dealing with life immediately the disciple comes back with a second question <laughs> we we it occurs to us how long do i have to do that when will this understanding be steady when will i be steady in this understanding how long kiyantam kalam how long do i have to keep on doing that and the master says what's your problem why do you ask this question when, when do we ask such questions when something is troublesome did you have breakfast this morning yeah do you ever ask how long do i have to take breakfast you enjoy it you, you love taking a cookie for example do you never ask how many times do you have to take this cookie no similarly the the master says 
This analysis of Vedanta, establishment of non-duality, coming to this non-dual awareness, this is joy, this is happiness, this is peace, this is an end, sarva anartha nivritti, this is an end to all suffering. In fact, dwelling on duality is suffering. Dwelling, thinking like this, I am this limited creature of flesh and blood who is going to get old and diseased and die. Dwelling in this paradigm, struggling to make a life for myself, getting scrabbling to get a little bit of happiness and trying desperately to avoid unhappiness, not very successfully, all my life and soon I will die. This is Swami, this is a very pessimistic view of life. That's what it is. Why would you ever want to dwell in this paradigm? Dwell in the other paradigm. Even if it seems theoretical, even if it seems philosophical, even if it seems just imagination. Try to dwell in that and see what happens. Immediately you get peace. Somebody a few days ago said, I listened to this teaching of Vedanta, you know, just listening to it gives me a lot of peace. It creates a separation between the real you and the imposition of the body-mind. It creates a separation, a gap. It gives you room to relax, you know, take a step back and relax. To put the burden of life down for once. It's like a man carrying a, a huge sack on the head. But suddenly you see, no, it's a picture of a man carrying a sack. Now in the picture, how much pain is the, that, that man, man experiencing? Nothing, it's a picture. Similarly, the whole thing, the so-called burden of life appears to our awareness. If you think in that way, if you remain in that paradigm, immediately you get rest, you get peace. So the master says, why do you ask how long do I have to do this philosophical analysis, vichara? Do it as long as you want. Vedanta says, Asupte amrite kalam nait Vedanta chintaya. Till you fall asleep, till you die, spend your time in Vedantic thought, in this Vedantic paradigm. It won't interfere with your life. You'll be able to function much better. Vivekananda said, a student who thinks that he is the Atman will be a better student. A fisherman who thinks he is the Atman will be a better fisherman. Whatever you do in life, you can do it much better with greater relaxation, uh, with greater peace and joy and strength and calmness if you think that you are the Atman. Even before, before enlightenment, even before that, if you change the paradigm, so why are you asking how long do I have to do this with a long face? No, it's a matter of joy. Then the student says, next question, the disciple asks, and we all ask these questions. I understand that I am the Atman. When I do Drik, Drishya, Viveka, these techniques, I begin to get a sense of what you're talking about. I understand it, that I am the Atman. But still I feel hunger and thirst and pain. You said I am pure consciousness, beyond suffering. But I still I feel it. Do you see the contradiction? Sri Ramakrishna says, they say that they are the Atman, but if you are pierced by a thorn, they go, ow! Kata putle uf in Bengali they say. So, I feel pain. I feel hunger and thirst and suffering. Directly I feel it. I understand I'm the Atman. Question? Do you see the question? If you enjoy the question, you'll enjoy the answer. You see, yeah, it's my question. What is, what is the answer? The answer is very subtle. These questions are questions of people who have already studied and understood Vedanta. Now look at the answer. The master says, follow this carefully. You are using the word I in two senses. What did you say? I am the Atman, okay, first. And next you said, I feel hunger and thirst and pain. Who feels the hunger and thirst and pain? The ego, right? When you say, I am hungry, I'm suffering from hunger. We say that? All of us, suppose we, in modern uh, civilization, we don't experience that, we're just the opposite. We eat too much, we are hardly ever hungry. But pain, suppose physical pain. I feel pain. I feel pain. You can actually try it. These are things to be tried in real life. Pinch yourself, not too hard. Pinch yourself and see the experience. I feel pain. 
at that time you'll be clearly aware that this I feel pain is an experience to something within you. Something within you is aware of the whole experience of I feel pain. That I is the ego, ahankara. And no doubt it feels pain. It's in the mind and it feels pain. But behind it, lighting up, illumining it, is consciousness. That one which is aware of, I feel pain right now. I feel pain is an experience. That one which is aware of this experience right now, does it feel pain? Is it in pain? No. Am I losing you? Some of you. That's all right. But think about it. You have used the word I in two senses. First you said, I understand that I am the Atman. I am the witness consciousness. Next you said, I feel pain. If you feel pain, the whole thing is an experience appearing to the real I. The second sentence you said, there you are using I in the sense of the ego, ahankara. It's like, I know he's a mirror. My face is reflected in the mirror. I know that I'm the real face. I'm not that reflected face. It's just a reflection of my real face. I say that. Next I say, oh, my face is dirty. There's some dust in the mirror. Oh, my face has become dirty. No, you have used your, the word face in two senses. First you meant the real face, which is not reflected in that. I mean, the face is here, the real face is here. So the face is, this face has not become dirty. When there's dirt in the mirror, the reflected face seems dirty. No? Vedanta will not work if you just, I want to listen to a nice sermon on a Sunday. No, it won't work. When uh, Swami Ranganathanandaji used to give this example, once in Delhi he gave a talk, and after the talk, this um, lady came out of the talk and uh, she said to Ranganathanji, Bahut badiyawa, wonderful Swami, wonderful lecture. And Ranganathanji said, what did, you, what did you like in the lecture? And the lady said, I'll tell you in uh, Hindi and then translate. The lady said, Wo hum kya ki bahut badi badi What do I understand? They are very big Vedantic talk. Once I gave a talk in Belurmat, and a friend of mine, a monk, who doesn't, uh, whose English is poor, so after the talk he came out and said, I really liked your, the talk was in English, I really liked your talk, Swami, and I would have liked it even more if I had understood any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Consider this example. You are looking at, the, at your face in the mirror. There is the original face, there is the mirror, and there is a face in the mirror, your reflected face. And you know, that's not my real face. My real face is here. I know I am this. I am not that reflected face. It's a reflection of my face. You say that, sentence one. Sentence two, there is dust on the mirror. You say, oh, my face has become dust dusty. Your real face has not become dusty. It's a reflected face in the mirror. First you used original face, and the next sentence you are using the word face for the reflected face. You are making the same mistake when you say, I am the witness consciousness. Oh, I am in pain. What you are doing is, you are superimposing the reflected um, uh, consciousness in the, in the mind. The mind is like the mirror. Or the ego is, ego in the mind very precisely is like the mirror. And you, the consciousness, are reflected in that. All of this may seem very theoretical. It is not, I assure you. You can actually check right now to see this is exactly what is happening. If you can see it that way, you are very close to enlightenment. You will, actually, you will, in fact, I'm saying very close to enlightenment just uh, for safety's sake, because otherwise you'll feel you are enlightened. You'll see the difference very clearly. It's very clear, the difference. So the master tells the disciple, you are using the word I in two different senses. When you say, I am Brahman, I understand. Okay, I am Brahman. You have understood this? Then now next, why are you saying, I am in pain? Look, he is not denying that there is an experience of pain. But the I which you just spoke about, the witness consciousness, it is the witness of that pain. It's not in pain. It actually works. The classic example, I have often told you about this, Sri Ramakrishna. 
suffering from the, the terrible pain of, uh, of throat cancer. And Hari asks him, sir, how are you today? And he says, oh, I'm in great pain. I cannot eat. This hurts. And Hari says to him, sir, I think I see that you are in great bliss. And Ramakrishna bursts out laughing and says, oh, the rascal has caught me out. How is that possible? Is he not in pain? He is in pain. There is pain. There is the ego in the mind which identifies with the mind and the experience of pain in the mind and can legitimately, truthfully say, yes, I am in great pain. There is the greater truth of the consciousness which lights up the whole thing, which is beyond pain. And he can say, yes, I am in great joy, I am in no pain. Both are true, but both at two different levels. You can look at the mirror which is cracked and you can see your distorted reflection of your face and you say, my face is cracked or distorted. And you can say, nothing has happened to my face. Both are true. The word, nothing has happened to my face is a greater truth. Is really true. And this is an experience which you are having. Again and again. I read a letter by Swami Shivananda, who was the second president of the order, the direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. A letter, a letter which he is writing to a simple postcard, and I actually read it recently. He's writing to a monk many, many years ago. The body is not at all well, he's saying. The body is not at all well. But the vision of Satchidananda within is ever before me. That I'm always in that experience. Hence, I do not care for the body and its illness. And he writes, I pray to Sri Ramakrishna that you too may one day have this vision. Basically, you see, this is the same question. The separation of the ego from the Atman. Ahankara and Atma. Ahankara is Anatma, not self. Ego is not self. That's our problem. We think that the ego is the self. I am this. But I am experiencing it. What experiences the I? That is not the self. The disciple is not going to let go. He's a very serious disciple. So he says, yeah, I get it, what you're trying to say. I'm superimposing the mirror and its reflected face upon my real face. I'm thinking that's who I am. No, I'm not that. I understand. But, next question. He says, Jatiti Adhyasa. It happens so fast. Some thorn pricks me and I go, ow, it hurts. Somebody throws an insulting word at me and I, the great Vedantic you know, student, decades of, I've been coming to the Vedanta Society for 30 years and, I, and somebody hurls an insult at me and I flare up immediately. What a road rage. Or what? I heard a new one, parking rage. So immediately I become angry, furious. What has happened? A word comes, insulting word, directed to the person, and the person reacts in anger, instead of saying, I am the witness consciousness of all of this. If you, if you would say that, then the flash of anger in your mind would immediately quieten down. It's our identification with the mind which makes us feel, I have been insulted, I am righteously angry. We don't feel that. Why don't we feel it? The disciple points out something important. He says, Jatiti, it happens very fast, in an instant, before I can think, before I can bring my Vedanta, take out my Vedanta notes and read it. <laughs> before, before that, it... And the master says, do you know why that happens? These are all important. These are very subtle, but very practical. And it, it deepens our understanding of Vedanta. He says, it happens because of long practice. You have seriously practiced being the body and mind. Not only for many years, for, for many lifetimes you have practiced, I am this. So it becomes an automatic reaction. Then what do we have to do? Avartait Advaitam. Repeat the Advaitic understanding. Repeat it again and again. Immerse yourself in it. Be sunk in that Advaitic understanding, at least for some time every day. Till that too becomes a habit. I gave the example of, uh, I've seen monks for whom it has become a habit to react not as the ego, as the body-mind, but as witness consciousness. To take that position. There's no time to give examples, but it is possible. It can be done. 
First of all, you must have that understanding. So attend the Vedanta talks and read the books and try to meditate and understand and see the difference between the pure subject and what is an object. And then try to remain, think, speak and act from that position. The student is, uh, says, okay, I get it. Um, one more question. The disciple goes and asks this next question. I read, and you have taught me in Vedanta that you go beyond all desires. We go beyond all desires when you attain enlightenment. The Atman is beyond all desires. But unfortunately, I find two problems. One is, I still have desires. I, I can't claim that I'm enlightened. And second, more troubling, when I actually look at the lives of enlightened people, they also seem to have desires. Right? Sri Ramakrishna would come down from um, ecstasy and would say, I'll have a glass of water. He would say he had a preference for jilipi, a particular Indian sweet. So did he not have a desire for jilipi? Did Vivekananda not have a desire to set up the Vedanta Society of New York? Here we are. Luckily he did. So they had desires. You might say good desires, but they certainly do have desires. And the master says, look, again you are making the same mistake. Where are the desires? The desires are in the mind. The ego is in the mind. So there's a thought in the mind that I like a cookie. The ego says, I want a cookie. You are the witness behind both the ego and the liking of the cookie. You as pure consciousness have no desire at all, even if the mind has got desires. First, establish yourself in that. He introduces a concept called Hridaya Granthi. Uh, Hridaya Granthi means not of the heart. It's an important concept in Vedanta. You get it in the Upanishads. Not of the heart. K-N-O-T. Not means the entanglement of the conscious and the non-conscious. Chid Jara Granthi. Pure consciousness and that which is not pure consciousness, name and form. They are entangled. In the heart means in the understanding. And this not has to be snapped. Granthi bhedaha. This is the Sanskrit word. Snapping of this knot. What you are doing continuously is taking desires and tendencies in the mind and attributing it to the witness self. That has to stop. Tendencies and likes and dislikes may be in the mind due to past karma. We call it prarabdha karma. Even for an enlightened person, after enlightenment, the tendencies which were in the mind earlier will continue. But that person now knows for sure that I am not the person. I am not the body-mind. The body-mind continue. If the body, if the body has a problem, Ramakrishna, he broke his arm. Did his enlightenment cure his arm? No. He knows I am not the body with the broken arm or with the, with the arm not broken. So as you are, the enlightened person is not the body, in the same way the enlightened person is not the mind. Now one thing we must be careful here. The question comes up in the mind. So in that case, an enlightened person's mind may have bad desires also, immoral desires also, bad tendencies also. After all, he's the un Atman, the, the pure consciousness. He's not tainted by good desires or bad desires because they're all in the mind. And he's separate from the mind. Is that possible? The answer is one must be careful here. Absolutely not. Because to attain that enlightenment, a person has already gone through sadhana, spiritual practice. Has gone from immorality to, 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 to morality, an ethical life. One cannot be spiritual without being moral first. One may be just moral and ethical without being particularly spiritual. But one cannot be spiritual without being moral and ethical. So a moral and ethical personality is already there. And then the enlightened person realizes, I am not this moral and ethical personality also. I am the witness of that. Then what happens? The moral and ethical personality continues. It continues after enlightenment also. So all those moral desires, good desires, the good tendencies which were cultivated over a long period of time, those will continue. Not immoral desires. There won't be any immoral desires. Another thing, immoral desires, lust and greed and anger, negative reactions, they all come. Fundamental condition is 
strong body-mind identification. It is because we are strongly identified with the system of flesh and blood, that's why lust affects us, anger affects us, jealousy affects us, uh, arrogance and pride affect us. I am a very learned person. You don't know anything. That's identification with the intellect. I am a very rich person. You are a loser. That's an identification with, with this personality and its, its, um, its successes in life. I am the witness to all of this in all bodies and minds. The plain white cloth is behind all pictures painted on it. I'm the common reality to all of this. Then why will you be attached to one thing and not to the other? Why will you be attached to the billionaire's body and mind and not to the homeless person's body and mind? You are the detached witness of both. So immoral desires will not be there in the mind of an enlightened person. Good desires may be there. And those good desires have no binding effect on the enlightened person. Sri Ramakrishna puts it this way. He says, after enlightenment, the desires remain, only the form remains, they do not bind. He gives an example of a burnt rope. If a rope is burnt, it still looks like a rope. If, sometimes it retains the form. But if you just blow at it, it it's the ashes scattered and the rope scatters away. So it looks like that, but it can't bind anybody. Similarly, the tendencies in the body-mind may remain. This enlightened person, knowing that he or she is apart from it, they cannot bind this person. The person may continue in that sense, but if the person wants, he can come out of it. Um, for example, people wonder, Totapuri, Sri Ramakrishna's guru, becomes very annoyed when somebody, you know, he has a Naga Sanyasi with a sacred fire, and somebody came at night, the, the guard in the temple, he wanted to take the fire for a smoke, and take some fire from the sacred fire, and, and, the, and Totapuri became furious and started chasing him. And Ramakrishna burst out laughing, oh, I've seen the extent of your non-duality, of your Advaita Vedanta. But then Totapuri was never seen to be angry again. Right? He's able to, oh, so there is anger in the mind. Drop it. It'll be dropped. Might be, so the person is able to transcend it. Others are not able to transcend it because we are so identified with the body and mind. What's there continues to be there. Very difficult to transform. This person can detach, can let go immediately. Swami Turiyananda, somebody gave him a very nice sherbat in Belurmat in hot summer. He took one sip of it and he said, take it back. And the person who gave it to him said, Swami, didn't you like it? Wasn't it nice? Didn't you like it? He said, I liked it. That's why. <laughs> he can detach himself immediately. With pain in the body-mind, with jealousy in the body-mind, with, with uh, any kind of reaction which he wants to transcend, immediately can detach himself. So that's what happens. I, as the witness consciousness, am not party to the tendencies of the body-mind. Never was, not am, and will never be. The next question they ask is very interesting. The disciple asks. But the witness consciousness was, in that case, was never affected by the desires of the body and mind, even for the unenlightened person or the enlightened person. Think about it. Even now, if the reality is that we are Brahman, that Brahman is not affected by our, uh, our negative tendencies. I might consider myself to be unenlightened and full of bad tendencies, negative tendencies, but reading Vedanta, I know even right now my real nature, Brahman, is not affected by this. The disciple asked the master, in that case, the Atman, which is not affected by negative tendencies, is common. This is something common to unenlightened persons and enlightened persons. A very interesting question. The real self, not tainted by negativities, by anything wrong, it's something common to the unenlightened and also the enlightened. So what good is enlightenment? <laughs> it's a common, common state to both. And the answer is stunning. Itijet, if this is what you are asking, the master says, Tanna Mismara, never forget what you just said. Uh, he says, Ayameva, Ayameva hi Granthi Bhedaha. This is exactly the snapping of the knot. 
this very understanding that never was i even as an unenlightened person never was i affected by the world never am I, i am not affected by this world now never will i be affected by the world this very understanding is the snapping of the knot snapping of the knot the cutting of the knot of the heart seems to be something that you have to do in mount sinai in the cardio unit there it's nothing physical it's just a misunderstanding being corrected the master says what you have just said now absolutely what you have just said there is no difference as far as the atman is concerned for the unenlightened person for the enlightened person this itself is the snapping of the cutting of the knot of the heart this itself is enlightenment he says tan navismara never forget what you just said this is enlightenment this is the only difference between the unenlightened and the enlightened i am ever free brahman right now enlightenment it's a very radical statement what thinking about more you contemplate this every problem in the world is solved okay one more question and i'm done i've already run out of time um the last question which the student asked there are many more but interesting question so enlightenment does it mean not being involved in the world does it mean becoming a monk or not being active in the world and you can answer this question now the master says absolutely not a person enlightened person can be fully active in the world can be fully withdrawn from the world sitting in a cave can be fully engaged in the world all of that is possible then the student asks then why do we see some uh, enlightened persons sitting in a in a raman maharshi would sit in the cave all his life and somebody goes in the himalayas and sits there we have this archetypical example of an enlightened person have a long beard and sit in the cave and meditate why do you have that and the master says because it depends upon the nature of the enlightened person upon the previous conditioning of that particular mind is that person has developed like an like a recluse an ascetic in a cave will continue to be a recluse and ascetic in the cave if the person has tendencies of helping others narendranath who became vivekananda remember even as a kid he was very kind hearted and he always would be moved by the sufferings of others and of course ramakrishna gave him an impetus swami gambhirananda points i'll end with this gambhiranji points out after enlightenment there can be three kinds of enlightened persons one is the enlightened person who wants to remain immersed in the bliss of the absolute of brahman i am sachidananda when vivekananda was asked by ramakrishna after his nirvikalpa samadhi what do you want he says now i want to remain immersed in samadhi once in a while i'll come down and have a snack <coughs> grab a sandwich or something but otherwise i'll remain immersed in samadhi and ramakrishna scolded him luckily he did he said shame on you i thought you would be a like a banyan tree under which so many people for centuries together will find shade and comfort and succor and so he made vivekananda do all this work luckily he did that's why we are here today but what vivekananda said that's nothing there's nothing particularly wrong in that if one wants to remain absorbed in 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 divine bliss what's wrong with that that's one kind of enlightened person such people are there the second kind of enlightened person gambhiranji writes is a person who knows that i am sachidananda i am brahman knows that very clearly unshakably so but then looks upon this show of the world as a magic show you know something extraordinary an extraordinary appearance in the existence consciousness place uh, ramakrishna records how in dakshineshwar there would this monk who would uh, come who would sit all day long and and meditate in his uh, uh, little hut but when there is a thunderstorm or something you know he would come out and say oh wonder of wonders wow wow wonderful how how glorious is the play of maya and would go back in into his hut again so looks upon this as something amazing you see these people are the are the crazy men of god the crazy people of god the people who seem to be bad from our our perspective there's a third kind uh gamiranji says the one whose heart melts in 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 compassion for the suffering millions that there is a there is something beyond suffering there's an end to suffering let me go and tell them the buddhas and the bodhisattvas and the great spiritual masters of humanity 
who come back and teach us this, what they have found, and show us the paths towards that. So that's also one kind of enlightened person. And the master tells the disciple, it could be any, anything, any of them. As far as their external activities are concerned, they are of many types. Some are very active in the world. Some are completely withdrawn from the world. Some seem to be the sanest and most ordinary person. Swami Prabhavananda, when he came to Hollywood in the 1930s, in, in 1950s and 60s when the hippie movement started, and there were all kinds of spiritual movements going on in Berkeley and uh, nearby. He joked, Berkeley, wonderful place, um, an avatar at every street corner. <laughs> and he said, with a touch of pathos, he had seen the direct disciples of Ramakrishna. He said, what do I see here? What, do I, what did I see in Belurmat in those days? I saw gods pretending to be men. And what do I see here? I see men pretending to be gods. <laughs> so there might be people who are very active in society and fully enlightened. Might be people who are completely withdrawn. All of them, their external activities are very different. Internally, their realization is one and the same. One person is not more enlightened and one person is not less enlightened. They all have realized we are the same Satchidananda. So very beautiful discussion, uh, 40 verses nearly at the end of the sixth chapter of Panchadashi, and there are more. There is also a beautiful section which will take a full, more than a full class to talk about, where the disciple says, granted all of this, I understand, but still give me some practical techniques of stabilizing this knowledge. And the teacher gives him, there's a threefold approach to stabilizing the knowledge, so those things are also there. Very subtle discussion. If you follow it, you will get great joy and it's sprinkled with flashes of insight all throughout. <coughs> Continuously brings you back to the reality. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Satchidananda. <coughs> Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram. Krishna Rupa Namastu